The story that we're looking at today is a story that's all about compromise. Compromise in the temple. And I honestly think that compromise is really the greatest issue that we face in Christianity today. What we see all over is Christians who have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. We see people who want the benefits of Jesus. They want to be able to receive all the good things Jesus have, but they don't want to actually have Jesus tell them what to do with their lives. And I'm just gonna be honest, guys, in my own heart, I fall into that trap all the time. I want the blessings of God. I want the goodness of God. I want the mercy of God. I want him to help me with my problems. But so many times I don't want to actually do what he tells me to do. And I wonder, sometimes when Jesus returns, will he find a church, a people who have faith in him? I wanna discuss today with you guys, just thinking of this story where Jesus is going in and turning over these tables. Are there tables in your heart that need to be overturned? Are you willing to step into the consuming fire of God's love and let him burn away whatever is not good? Because guys, there will not be even the smallest portion of hell in heaven. You can't even take a little nugget of hell in your pocket to heaven with you. So we all have hell inside us. Hell is, of course, a place where some people go when they die, where it's separations from God, but we carry darkness and evil and hatred and sin in our hearts. We literally carry around the concept of hell in our hearts, and God looks at us like a surgeon looking at someone with cancer saying, I will not rest until that is gone from you. We need to remember that the primary purpose of following Jesus is actually really becoming more like him. I wanna ask you guys, if, if somebody asked you, what's Jesus like? Could you say, well, he's like me? It's kind of a lame question to ask. I don't think any of you guys would actually say that because it seems kind, of, seems kind of prideful to say it. But in 1 Corinthians 11 verse one, it says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And I wanna ask you guys, are we not called to be God's hands and feet? Are we not called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around us? Do you believe that? Like, do you believe with all your heart that you're called to actually be the body of Christ? Not just, I'm a Christian, I show up to church, but you're called, you, like ninth grader, 10th grader, 11th grader, 12th grader, college kid, you are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. With all my heart, I truly believe that the life that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago is the same life that Jesus wants to live out in our lives. If we want revival, and I, I, I hope you want revival. Many of you guys have probably heard revival. What, what a revival means is it's looking at something that's dead and it's putting it back to life. It's setting it back on fire. And so many times in my life, I'm looking for revival. I think when we go up to camp, a lot of times we're looking for revival. But if we truly want revival in our lives, we must recognize our compromise. We must recognize the sin in our life, and we have to ask ourselves the question, am I reflecting the reality that God is real? The issue today that we're looking at, it's totally an issue that's all about worship, and we all are worshipers. In all of us, we're built, we're designed to worship, but the question is, what are we worshiping? We're gonna just look at three things today. The first one is we're gonna look at what Jesus did in the temple. So check out, if you look at verse 13, it's talking about the Jews were heading to Jerusalem. People were heading to Jerusalem for the Passover of the Jews. And if you guys don't know what Passover was, if you guys, who remembers the story of Moses? Moses, right? So Moses um, was in Egypt and he was telling Pharaoh, let my people go. He had tons of plagues that happened, but at the end of it, Pharaoh just wouldn't let the people go, so God sent the angel of death to Egypt to just kill all the firstborn baby boys. But what happened was God told Israel, if you will paint your doors with the blood of the lamb, my angel of death will pass over you and your children won't have to die. And so Israel for years would celebrate that moment when God delivered them and allowed their baby boys to survive. Um, so what happens is when you go to Passover, this is the system. You bring 
sacrifice. You bring your own animal. And there's about two million people traveling to Jerusalem for this thing. And you have to walk. You have to walk a long journey and you have to bring your own sacrifice. And if you live 500 miles away, like, do you, like, that's, that's lame to bring your own sheep. Can you imagine walking 500 miles with a sheep or a goat? That would literally be torture. So what the Jews did was they came up with this system where instead of, you know, you have to bring your own sheep for 500 miles, you can just show up to the city and you can buy a sheep in the city. Um, So that's the system that they had. Um, It's kind of like the way that we offer Bibles. You know, if you don't have a Bible, like we want to make it convenient for you. So like, hey, if you don't have a Bible, you can go get one back there and we'll bless you. But um, it would kind of be like that. But if we charged you for it, you know, like, hey, like two dollars for a Bible. So it's not necessarily bad. It's making it easy for the people, the people who want to sacrifice these animals. But here's the problem. The problem was the priests were taking advantage of the people. These are the pastors, the people who are supposed to honor God. What was happening was People were bringing their sheep um, from the long journey, and and the pastor would look at the sheep, the priest, and go, oh, you know what? That sheep's got some spots on it. That sheep's got some blemishes. That's not going to work. That's not a good enough sacrifice for God. So you need to buy one of our sheep. They were totally profiting off of people. And what was meant to be a blessing to people, what was meant to be something that made things convenient for people and to bring glory to God, to just allow them to buy animal sacrifices, it had turned into a total just like flea market scene. Have you ever been to a like flea market? I remember when John Barger and I had our studio, we'd go down to the flea market and it was just gnarly, just the smells and sights were amazing. The temple, which was a symbol given by God to mark his presence and his holiness more than it was a picture or type of Jesus, had been reduced to just this giant, gnarly flea market. And can you imagine being Jesus and you show up to the house of God? It's supposed to be your father's house. Like, have you guys ever been to a petting zoo? How does it smell? Not too good. Like, the priests had actually moved the animals into the temple, like into the church area where people were supposed to come and worship God. So Jesus shows up and he sees animals and there's just animal junk all over the floor and it smells. And then people were exchanging money because, you know, when you go to a foreign country, you have all these different foreigners coming in, all these people coming in for Passover to observe it, um, all these Jews coming from other lands. And what would happen was they brought their own money. Just like when you go to Mexico or uh, England or any other country, you have to exchange your American dollars for other types of currency. So what was happening was the money changers were also sitting in the temple, and they were exchanging the money and and profiting off of people and taking advantage of them. And in the other gospels, what Jesus actually says is um, in, in Matthew and Luke, Jesus looks at what's going on. He says, My father's house is supposed to be a house of worship, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've turned it into this this zoo. This is not the way things are supposed to go. It became a way for selfish men to profit off other people. And here's where we see Jesus like in a fury. You guys saw it like that moment in the video where it just zooms in on his face and it's super intense. I thought that was amazing. You know, I always thought of Jesus growing up as, like, meek and mild. Like, I imagine him sitting in a field, like, with flowers in his hair. Like, you know, consider the lilies of the field. He actually did say that. That is a thing Jesus said. So there was that side to him. Um, He was very in tune with God's nature. But then there's this other side of him where he sees just God's house being disrespected. and, And because of that, God being disrespected. And Jesus gets angry. He says, Jesus says, this does not reflect God's glory. Animal droppings on the floor of the sanctuary and and people profiting off of people, that does not reflect God's glory and who he is. In, In fact, what had happened was really everything that was going on in the temple was just an outward expression of a dead faith. Just people in this place who really didn't love God or care about him. It was just about the tradition. It was just about, oh, we got to go to Israel because that's what we do. We got to go to Passover. We got to make a sacrifice because that's what you do. Oh, and the priests were just profiting off of people. It was dead. There was no life in it, no real love for God. So for Jesus, this is really his first 
public act. He turned the water into wine, but this is the first time where Jesus does something big and public and in front of people. And he shows his authority and also his deity. And that means basically he's proving that he's God. He's proved, because what he's doing is he's fulfilling a prophecy. Check this out. In Malachi 3, 1 through 3. You guys, if you don't know, the Old Testament's full of prophets who wrote things that basically like prepared the way for Jesus. They showed us hints and signals of Jesus. Here's a prophecy from Malachi. Malachi 3, verse 1 through 3, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. That means he's like the one who burns clean and he cleanses white as snow. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi were the priests. It's this prophecy about how Jesus will purify the priests and purge them as gold and silver, taking out basically all those who are not real, true followers of God in their heart, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And this was a well-known prophecy. Like people knew, the priests who studied the Bible, they would have known this prophecy. So for these guys, they didn't attack Jesus. They didn't, you know, rush him and stab him. What they did was they asked him questions. They said, what authority do you have? They're watching Jesus. He's going around. He's whipping and he's turning over tables. And they say to Jesus, how can you do this? And basically what they're saying is, are you trying to say that you're the one? Are you trying to say that you're the one about these prophecies? Because that doesn't fit what we thought the Messiah was going to be. It's almost like they recognized their guilt. They knew that they were wrong, but they didn't want to admit it until God actually showed up. So they're asking, like, are you really the one? And in that moment, like, Jesus' eyes flashed with fury. Like, just, I mean, have, have you ever seen anyone in holy anger? Have you ever seen anyone who, um, you know, we know the Bible says do not be angry, but there's such a thing as holy anger, righteous indignation. I think about, you know, in World War II, um, when people would just observe and see what the Nazis were doing to the Jews um, and the African Americans and the mentally disabled and the elderly, um, putting them in ovens and, and killing them in concentration camps. There was a righteous anger when people saw that. It wasn't wrong for them to be angry because they're seeing sin and they're seeing people being persecuted. There's such a thing as righteous anger where you say, this is not right. It makes me kind of think of, um, you guys remember uh, Lord of the Rings? You guys remember Galadriel? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Galadriel. Okay, in Lord of the Rings, the movie, there's this elf lady, and uh, Frodo's like, got the ring, and she's like, perhaps I could take the ring and become powerful. And she's good, but when she takes the ring, her like eyes flash and like fire, and she starts glowing, and she starts speaking with like 10 voices. It must have been something kind of like that to see Jesus just angry. And the disciples have never seen this before. They've never seen Jesus angry, but he's so passionate about God's house. He spoke with passion and authority. There's times where we see Jesus speaking with passion and authority. Um, there's a moment where Jesus goes on a mountain in one of the Bible stories, and it's called the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus goes up on this mountain, and basically Moses and Elijah appear, and Jesus starts glowing. And basically Peter and Andrew and John, I believe, they're up there, and they see like a glimpse of who Jesus really is because he's God in human flesh. So they're up there, and they see the glowing, and it's, they're, they're just blown away. Another time where we see Jesus' glory um, revealed just his power and who he is is the moment he gets arrested they, they show up in the garden, the soldiers and Judas, and they ask, where is Jesus? Like, where is the one we've come after? And Jesus says, I am he. And the Bible says when he said that, the soldiers all fell backwards by the power in his voice. So Jesus, in moments, reveals glimpses of who he really is. And we have to not let our view of Jesus be anemic. And what that means is our view of Jesus is basically a weak, long-haired hippie. Jesus was powerful. Jesus was strong. He f loved people furiously, and he loved God 
furiously. And he, he looks at what's going on in the temple, and he says, no one here has any respect for my father. They've turned the temple into a circus. Last week, we saw Jesus as the Lord of the feast because he's turning the water into wine. But now we see him as Lord of the temple. Look at verse 17. It says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Have you ever felt like you've been eaten up by something, like a feeling, like maybe you felt depressed and you just felt like that, that feeling was just eating you up, or maybe you felt hungry and you felt like your desire to eat something was eating you up, and you've, just got, you've got that gnarly, like just gnashing in your stomach. Jesus was literally consumed with passion for God's house. He was passionate for, and what God's house is always throughout time, God's house is the place where worship happens. We'll get more into that later. But at that moment in time, the temple was where worship happened. That's where people went to worship God. And Jesus shows up and people aren't actually worshiping. They're sinning and they're profiting and taking advantage of one another. And Jesus is consumed with passion for God's house. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to anyone else, nor my praise to carved images. God is worthy of praise. But so often in our lives, God is reduced to like sharing the spotlight with other things in our life that we say are more important. So the first thing is what God does in the temple. The thing secondly is he was revealing that the old system had failed and the new system had come. What I mean by that is Jesus is showing up and he's saying I'm clearing this temple for something new. Jesus shows up in the world, and basically, following God had been reduced into nothing but a giant show. No one actually had a heart for God. They were just doing what they thought they were supposed to do. It was just tradition. It was just taking advantage of people. And Jesus says, I'm clearing out all this junk, and I'm making place for something new. And as we study the Gospel of John, we're going to see how Jesus makes everything new. The old covenant can't save us. The old covenant, if you guys don't know from the Bible, a covenant's an agreement between God and man. The old covenant was basically, here are God's laws. You will work together with God to keep these laws and do good. No one could do it. No one could keep the law as hard as all the people in the Bible before Jesus tried. They couldn't be perfect and keep the law. We can't keep the law perfectly and we can't be saved by our works. We can't go to God and say, look at all the great things I've done. I've taught Bible studies. I've led worship. I've gone on mission trips. I've witnessed to people. Like, it will never be enough. Our works alone can't save us. But Jesus was setting the stage for a new system where it wasn't works that saved you, but it was simple belief in God. Jesus says in verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up but he was talking about the temple of his body. It's symbolic. Jesus had cleansed the temple at the start of his ministry. This is the beginning. Oh, Lord, is that you? So <laughs> uh, the force. Someone's a Jedi over there. It was symbolic, though. Check this out. This is actually really cool. This is the start of Jesus's ministry, the very beginning of it, and Jesus cleanses the temple. He makes it clean at the beginning. Jesus also cleansed the temple when he died. When Jesus died on the cross, it says there was this giant veil in the temple, and it was this giant curtain, and it represented the separation between man and God. When Jesus died on the cross, that, that veil ripped in half, and Jesus created this new space where anybody can be with God without having to go to a temple. Like literally, you carry the temple around with you in your heart and you can talk to God at any time. Only Jesus can save us. And I know you guys are all church kids. I know you've heard that before, but it's so important for us to just continue going over the fact that we cannot be saved by anything but Christ alone. In that moment, when Jesus was in the temple, knocking over the tables, turning things over, what was happening was he was the priest, he was the sacrifice, and he was the temple himself. Let me explain what that means. 
He was the priest because what a priest is, is it's somebody who stands between you and God. And a priest connects you to God. Back in the day, like if we still lived in Old Testaments, what you'd have to do is instead of praying, because you weren't good enough to really pray, you'd have to come to me. And you'd have to give me, like, here's all my bad stuff I did. Here's all my sin. And here's a goat. Will you go sacrifice it for me? And then I'd have to go into the temple. And if I did anything bad that day, I'd be struck dead. Like, that was the system. It was just death and, and just all this, like, gnarly death all around the place. And even the priests who were the ones supposed to connect the people to the Lord, they were imperfect. But Jesus was the perfect priest who stands between us and God and allows us direct connection. He was the sacrifice in the temple because Jesus came to take the penalty. The Bible calls him the Lamb of God. And Jesus was the temple himself because Jesus is the place where we find God's glory. Like, Jesus is a kind of temple. And if that weirds you out because you're like, wait, Jesus is in a building. Really, what a temple is, it's a place where we go to enter into God's glory. And that's absolutely where Jesus is. Every time you pray in the name of Jesus, every time you sit down in your room and you get your Bible and your journal out and you start talking to Jesus, you are entering into the presence of God through the access of Jesus. It's amazing we don't have to go to those temples anymore. Like, we have it so good. Another thing that this shows us is that it produced faith in his followers. Look at verse 22. It says, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to him, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus did this to show his disciples God's glory and to help them believe. He did it because he cares about people and he cares about God's glory and he cares about people connecting with God's glory. The next thing that we see Jesus do, the second thing, is we see what Jesus does in his church. So we saw what Jesus did in the temple. Now we see what Jesus does in his church. God's method of restoration is always with a difference and progress. That means it's always with change and progression. If you guys don't know what that means, it's like you're always moving forward. Walking with God, you're always moving forward. After Jesus' resurrection, a literal building was no longer meant to be the home of God's presence, but it would be in the dispensation of grace, a spiritual building made up of his followers. Basically, what all, what all that spiritual mumbo-jumbo means is it's not about a building. Like, I used to think that. When I was a kid, I'd drive by churches, and because I was very, like, legalistic, I'd look at, like, other churches, um, like Baptists, and um, I'd look at um, Lutheran churches and Catholic churches, and I'd be like, oh, they don't have the Spirit of God. But, like, I'd drive by Calvary Chapel, and I'm like, yeah, the Spirit's there, <laughs> just because I was very immature. Um, but now I realize the Spirit of the Lord is wherever God's people are. Like, that is... It's not about a building. It's not about a logo. It's not about Hope's Anchor or Crossroads or the Core Junior High or Calvary Chapel Vista, Simply Jesus. It's not about those things. Literally, it is about we are the body of Christ. And that, that tripped me up when I was a kid because like, I, I freaked out when I went into other, uh, I went to camps and I saw kids from other churches and I totally judged them and was like, oh, I don't even know if those guys are really Christians. And like, I was very focused on my own youth group. Guys, we need to understand no matter what church they go to, no matter you know, what denomination they're a part of, like if they believe in Jesus and if they believe in who God is and what he does and what Jesus has done, like they're our family. And it's not about a building. It's about wherever God's people are. Because we carry the spirit of God in our hearts. We are the temple. Because Jesus is the temple and he's with us. So guys, like, I don't know if you really understand this, but the presence of God is in this room with us right now. And he's trying to speak to you. And I, I seriously, I know this is a heavier message than you're used to. It's a little dry and um, there's not a lot of jokes or anything. And um, I had notes from when I did this message in junior high, and there was, like, way more jokes and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm going to use this. And then God was like, no, teach this. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, they're going to fall asleep. But you need to understand that God is here, and he's trying to speak to your voice. I wanna, or he want, he's trying to speak to your heart. I want to encourage you, listen. It's the reason why Jesus said, he was saying, hey, we can destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it. He was talking about his body. He was saying, there's a new way to be human. 
In Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows in a holy temple. Guys, we're called to be light bearers in the world. We're called to be lanterns. Like we have the spirit of God inside of us, which means we have light. And I want to ask you guys, like, think of this, not this room, but this collection of people as a temple. Not this terrace room. The terrace room is not a temple. But us, this collection of people, the family of God, your friends. Look around at your friends. Go ahead, look at them. Okay? Glance around. This is the temple. Like, we are the temple of God together. It is a team effort. We have the presence of God in our spirit, and then we carry it out. In our schools, we carry that light with us. I want to ask you guys, in this temple, this group of people right here, is there need for cleansing in this temple? Is there need for cleaning? Do we, do we realize? There's a verse in the Bible that says, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. It's talking about when you had bread and you're making it, um, you can't just add a tiny bit of leaven to the bread and just expect a little corner of the bread to expand. If you add le uh, leaven to dough, the whole bread expands. It's kind of like the idea of like if you have a glass of water and you just put a tiny drop of poison in it, the whole water ends up getting poisoned. And listen, I love you guys, so I'm just going to be straight up. For some of you guys, compromise is holding you back. Our sin affects the whole body. It's kind of like, for instance, if I have a hand and my thumb doesn't want to cooperate and I'm trying to grab things and my thumb doesn't want to, it's like pulling away from me, my hand's not going to be able to do what it wants to do. If I've got a foot and I'm trying to walk and one of my toes decides just to jump off and abandon ship, I'm not going to be able to walk straight. And I think you guys have seen this. I think you've seen compromise affect yourself and your friends. I think there's been times in your life where you've been trying to walk with Jesus and your closest friends have been compromising. They've been sinning, they've been messing up, and you're too scared to tell them that they're wrong out of love and try to correct them. So you end up getting sucked into their sin and you end up covering for them and you end up lying to just cover their tracks and people are asking you questions and you're just lying all over the place and then you end up getting sucked into doing what they're doing too. Compromise affects everybody. If you're compromising right now, you need to know it's not just your own secret little thing, your own personal little compromise. You will drag your friends down with you. And really, in a church, it starts from the top down. The sheep reflect the shepherd. And that's honestly why I need you guys to pray for me, honestly. I need you guys to pray that just as your pastor, that I stay humble and just open to who God is and what God wants to say to me. I, I, you guys need to pray for me that like, when I mess up, that I won't be prideful and try to hide my mistakes, but that I'll, I'll confess uh, to the people close around me that, hey, I'm a sinner and I need help. I need you guys to pray for me that I'll stay close to God. Because if I'm not walking with God, it, you guys will be affected by that most certainly. And I realize that as your pastor. We need to live lives that are holy. We need to live lives that reflect God and who he is. When the things of this world become our focus, when just the things around us, the things, the sinful things of the world, we don't reflect God, we just reflect our own dark, sinful nature. For example, it's really sad, but um, right now there's about um, uh, a guy predicted it's going to be about 400 pastors and uh, elders in church and, and, and ministers and workers and servants who are going to have to resign from their jobs because um, they got caught using a website um, that was all about basically finding an affair. For married people, it's like you go to this website and it's a service where you can find someone to commit adultery with. And there's all these Christians who had signed up for it. Another example is just hateful Christians. Christians who say they follow Jesus but, and yet they look at people who are sinners and they judge them and they say, how dare they? Like, these sinners are messing up my life. These sinners are inconveniencing me. Perhaps you've seen people be that way, looking at sinners not with a heart of compassion, but saying, you know, just for example, you know, I don't like what's going on with the homosexuals. It's making me uncomfortable. It's getting in the way of my rights, and so I don't like them, and I'm going to be angry at them. Um, we've seen Christians 
hateful at criminals and, and people who've made mistakes, um, not looking at them going, I hope that God saves them, but just looking at them and going, I hope that they get destroyed, those terrible, terrible people. Recently, I read stories about a Christian college where um, a bunch of students sexually assaulted a girl. Uh, a bunch of football players assaulted this girl while she was passed out drunk, and they filmed it and passed it around. And just you see people who are supposed to be Christians, but the dark inner nature of what's inside is reflected by their actions. And I think for you guys, what happens a lot is what, what I see with teenagers it's just an obsession with popularity and fame fitting in. They did a study where they asked teenagers uh, like 50 years ago, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And it was, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to do things to help people. Nowadays, they did the same survey, and what teenagers respond with 90% of the time was, I want to be famous. I want to be loved. I want people to recognize me. I want likes. I want followers. That's where we're at. That's the nature, That's the nature of our heart, and I've, I've been there. I've done that. We see with, with people your age, what I see all over the place is a downplaying of God's word and also no respect for the Lord, no respect for the things of God. And listen, God won't put up with that. He won't. He never does. He never has. God doesn't just sit back and go like, oh, like, that's great. Our lives are meant to be a temple. How has the junk come in? I think one of my biggest discouragements as a youth pastor has been seeing apathy. Just, not just here, but just, I've, I've been to other youth groups, I've been to camps all over the place, and I, what I see is apathy, and what apathy is, is it's a lack of interest in the deep things of God. It's saying, I don't wanna be challenged. I don't wanna study the word. I don't wanna read. I don't wanna pray. I just wanna be spoon-fed everything spiritual. I just want my parents or my pastor to take the meat of God's word and chew it up and spoon-feed it to me and then I go feeling better about myself. But I see a, just all over the place a lack of interest in the deep things of God. And again, I've been there just as a student, just so focused and wrapped up in myself that I don't wanna pursue God. And we see the statistics say that 65% of people are Christians, but can we really say that? Can we really look around and say 65% of people are walking with God? My friend Stefan, um, who went to Grand Canyon University, which is supposed to be a Christian college, texted me, and he's like, I'm pretty sure only 25% of the people here are actually following Jesus. God is not looking for churchgoers. He's looking for disciples. And I've been telling you guys that since sixth grade. God is looking not for people to sit in church chairs and listen and go, good, steady. He's looking for people who will say, Jesus is my master, and I recognize that whether Aaron gets up or Trevor gets up or Jake gets up or some guy who's never taught a Bible study gets up, when we open the word of God, he speaks to our hearts. And if Jesus is really our master, we listen to what he says, and we write it down, and we say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow what Jesus says. Ignorance isn't innocence. What I mean by that is so many times what we can do is we can just ignore what God is saying and not pay attention and then just act innocent. Like, well, I didn't know God said that, so how could I obey? If we read the word, it's laid out, and God calls us to read the word. He calls us to love his word and to love his laws. Guys, listen, low views of God destroy the gospel for all those who hold them. For everyone who has a low view of God, it destroys what God is trying to do in your life and in your heart. The idolatrous heart, that's someone who just has idols all throughout their life, and I've, I have been there. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is not as great as he says. Idolatry comes from thinking less of God and thinking more of other things. Thinking of God as just a slice of the pie of your life and not the whole pie and everything else is a slice. It's thinking of God and saying, God can't really help me with this problem. God can't really save me. I'm gonna turn to my friends. I'm gonna turn to drugs. I'm gonna turn to alcohol. I'm gonna run into the arms of this boy or this girl to fix my problems. It's looking at God and saying, God's not really worthy of worship, so I'm just gonna talk to my friends during this worship service and not just actually engage in who God is. It comes from thinking less of God. And for you guys, because listen, you guys are disciples. 
whether or not you realize it at this moment, it is true. You are called to be disciples, and I've seen so many of you guys walk in that. For you guys here, if, if you're hearing this today and you're like, I want to do this, I want to be a disciple, I want to follow. For you, the heaviest job for you, young people seeking revival, is to purify your view of God and to elevate it. What that means is to take your view of God and to renew your mind, the Bible says. That means getting a, just a view of God where God is the greatest. God is in control. God is worthy of praise. He's worthy of my attention. He's worthy of worship. It's elevating it. To elevate something just means it's like you put something in an elevator and you hit the up button. You make it higher. Our view of God needs to get higher. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord or he will humble the church. Listen to this. This is just, I know, I know this is a lot, guys. I know I'm usually the guy who's like, hey, like, love and peace and God loves you and he's got a plan for your life. And that's all true. And I will keep teaching those kind of messages. But sometimes we need to hear these ones. In Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, and the angel of the Lord came to the church of the Laodiceans, and he wrote, These things says the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness of the beginning of the creation of God. God says to this church, God's writing a letter to this church, I know your works. I know that you're neither cold nor hot, but I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy and have not need of anything. Do you not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked? He's saying, so many times we can be so satisfied with ourselves and say, oh, I'm a good Christian, I do this, I go to church, I serve here, I do this type of thing. And God is trying to always get us to see, no, spiritually, we're poor we're blind, we're wretched, we're naked, we have nothing to offer. But then look at the mercy of God. In the verse, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That verse, I just love that verse because basically what that verse is just trying to get us to understand is that anything we do on our own, trying to prove what a good person we are, it never adds up. But the, it'd, be so, it'd be such a bummer if it just ended that way. The verse was just like, nothing that you do matters, bye. That would be so terrible. But what the verse says is God says, listen, this is my advice to you. Come to me and get gold refined by fire. That means get wisdom when you're going through trials. And you, instead of trying to do it on your own, you realize I have nothing to offer. And you go to Jesus who has everything to offer, and he helps you with your trials. It says, come to me for white garments. That means, because so many times what we do is we, we act prideful. I've done it. I'm like, you know, I'm a good Christian. I do all these things. I serve. Um, I, I, I worship the Lord. I, I, I'm, I can get prideful. That's like wearing filthy rags and thinking that you have like the sickest, dopest outfit on the market. And everyone's just looking at you going like, oh my gosh, like you're walking around in crazy, smelly, homeless person rags. But Jesus says, come to me and I will clothe you in white garments. What he's saying is find your identity in me. Not in your pride, not in how good you think you are, not how good you've done, not how hard you've tried to show your parents how good you are, not how hard you've worked in school, but just come to me and find your identity in the fact that you're a child of God and you're loved by me. It's just, it's awesome. It says, many that I love, I rebuke and chasten. That means if, I, if God loves you, sometimes he's gonna say something that really convicts you, and that's good. And then he says, behold, he says, be zealous and repent. That's the same word, be passionate. Be passionate about the things of God. Like, I hope you're hearing this. I hope there's some sort of fire being stirred up in you where you're like, you know what? I need to kick it up a notch. Not because you're trying to earn your way to God and you're gonna come in here and raise your hands in church. And it's, you're not proving anything to me. It's not about like me seeing your passion. It's about in your heart, how do you truly feel about God? Is God an afterthought, or is he the first thing in your mind? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he'll eat with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we have ears to hear? 
Do we have ears to listen what God would say? Or do you think maybe God would spit us out of his mouth in that verse? When God talks about someone who's not hot or cold, it's a lukewarm person. I don't know if you've ever thought you were grabbing a hot drink and you were so excited to drink it and then you put it in your mouth and it's just lukewarm and nasty and you just spit it out. Right now we're having plumbing problems at our house and the, the shower water is often very cold. So, you know, we turn it on and we think like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. You know, we know, you know, you got to wait at least a minute for the water to heat up. And then we jump in and it's freezing, just cold and lukewarm, nasty. Like, that's what God is talking about. God's looking, God looks at a Christian. This is one of the harshest verses in the Bible. Like, it, it can bum me out. But God looks at a Christian who's not on fire, but they're not cold. Like, they're, they're not just like, oh, I don't care about God. They're somewhere in the middle where they're just kind of like, yeah, I guess I care about God. I guess I follow Jesus, I guess. And Jesus says, I'd rather you be cold. Like, if you're not gonna choose to actually follow me, then just pick the choice of not following me. Just Jesus is saying it is, it is much better for you to be hot or cold than anything else. And Jesus says he spits lukewarm out of his mouth. That, that's just, it's crazy. But here's why we need to end with the third point, because this is where the encouragement comes in. Yes, there is encouragement, okay? Do not be dismayed. The third thing we look at is what Jesus will do in us if we let him. So in that verse, it talks about Jesus standing at the door. Does he stand at the door and kick it down? What does it say? I stand at the door and what? No. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will answer, I will come in. Jesus will not force himself into your life. He's not going to come and break down your door and just change you and make you this on-fire Christian. He knocks and he knocks. And right now, if you're hearing this he is knocking on your heart and saying, let me in, let me in. It's not a passage about salvation. It's a passage about Christians who are not willing to fully let God into their lives to do what, to allow God to do what he was supposed to do. Are we willing to let him do the work that he wants? Once God gets inside, he's gonna start turning tables. That's what happened. When he got inside the temple, he saw what was wrong with it. It was this place that was meant for worship, but it was being used for just sin. And he starts flipping over tables, and we see Jesus, and we're like, Jesus, that's crazy. But Jesus is like a surgeon who looks at someone with cancer and says, I am not content until every bit of cancer is removed. I'm going to start cutting right away to remove that. If we let him in, he'll do that. But so many times we're content to kind of just crack the door open and just say, hey, Jesus, it's Sunday. Hey, Jesus, it's Wednesday night. Like, why don't you come say something to make me feel better? All right, I'm closing the door because this is my life. Are we willing to let him turn over the tables? Are we willing to let him make change? Because, guys, we're not just the temple as a whole, but we're the temple individually. Remember, you guys have the Spirit of God in your heart. 1 Corinthians 13, 16 through 17 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which the temple you are. Guys, you're the temple that he wants. God wants to dwell in you. That's, that is amazing. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God who created the entire universe wants to live in your heart. It's not just like, he's like, I guess I'll live in their heart. He wants to live in your heart. He wants to make you more whole. He wants to fill the emptiness. Every day he's knocking and saying, will you let me in? Will you let me eat with you? Yeah, when I come in, I may knock the plate on the ground. I may turn the table over, but that's because the food that you're eating is garbage, and I want so much better for you. I want to prepare a feast for you that'll blow your mind. Jesus looks at you, and he says, I have so much more for you. He looks at you and he says, you were meant to be a picture of me. How will people know? The Bible says, how will they know unless we preach the gospel? How will the unsaved people of the world know unless we preach? And how can we preach unless we reflect Jesus? The reasons I'm so passionate about this is just in dealing with youth ministry, I've seen just a lot of brokenness. I've seen even recently just people struggling with cutting people struggling with suicide, people just addicted, teenagers addicted to drugs, teenagers just experiencing shame and guilt from sexual brokenness in their life. And we ask, what can fix it? That's what we're always asking. My problems, what can fix them? What can make me feel better? The only thing that can fix us is Jesus. 
We need to let Jesus in. Let him cleanse the temple. We need to let Jesus turn the tables of pride and selfishness and lust and greed and jealousy and apathy. Again, apathy is not caring. We need to let him knock those tables over because those are all the things that Satan uses in your life to rob you of what God has for you. And Jesus says, I have so much more for you. He has so much more for you. I remember going to Mexico um, on a missions trip and just seeing kids in poverty with just no money and no parents, and they're playing in trash heaps. That's all they had, just giant piles of trash out in the streets with stray dogs running everywhere. That was their playground, was giant piles of garbage. And I just looked at them, and I was like, God has so much more for them. And I, I just... I have a heart for these children who just experience so much suffering on earth while I sit around and eat in and out and live in a nice house. I have a heart to see them get to the kingdom of heaven where they'll see all that God had for them. They'll see everything that God desired for them. And that needs to be our heart, to look at people and to have our heart break when we see people all around us dying and suffering. This isn't a feel-good message. Again, I could have... It's an intense message, and you can say, Aaron, you're so intense, but that's good because there's a war for souls. There's people dying and going to hell all around us, and God has called you to see a world of people around you, to not just live for yourself, but to live to see people experience the best that God has for them, to see people experience the kingdom of heaven here and then one day when it's complete and there's no more sin and there's no more death or dying. God has called you, but so many times we're held back. There's so many of you that are held back by just disrespectful attitudes where you just don't care about what any authority says in your life, and it's just whatever teacher or parent comes in your life, you just you don't care. You just want to do what you want to do, and it's just disrespect and talk back and, and dissing authorities with your friends. Some of you are held back by sexual addictions like pornography. Some of you guys are held back by just the way that you use social media in a way that does not honor the Lord but is, is sneaky and deceptive and oftentimes conversations that are perverted and, and not honoring to the Lord. Some of you guys are in relationships and they're not honoring to the Lord and, and you cause each other to stumble and you fall into sin constantly and it's, it's not worship to the Lord and some of you guys are just lost in, into lying. And the biggest thing is apathy. It stems from just not caring. And Jesus says to you, listen, I have so much more for you. Jesus wants to save you from yourself. And I, I just, I plead with you today, seriously, as someone who loves you, as an older brother who thinks of you often and cares about you, let him in. Don't sit here and be like, well, I'm one of the good kids. This is for the bad kids. And you're looking around at kids. And you're, you know, our, our youth group does, we don't really have any like bad kids. Like none of you guys are grown up on the wrong side of the tracks, but you're all sinners just like me. And I need this message too. I need to be reminded how much I need Jesus. I just, I beg you, if you're hearing this today and there's any conviction in your heart today, open the door and let God in. It's not like, hey, if you've never been saved, like give your life to Jesus. This is this is we need constantly to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, there is wrong in me. There is sin in me. Cleanse me, Lord. Make me clean. Make me a vessel that's holy so I can be used by you. Because listen, it's not about what you do for God. It's about what God will do in and through you if you just let him in. At the end of the chapter, it says, there's people who believed in Jesus and they saw the miracles, but it said Jesus didn't commit himself to them. At the end of this chapter, it's a, it's a crazy verse. I'd never thought about this before. It says Jesus did not commit himself to them. They believed because they saw the miracle and they, or they, they saw him doing all these crazy things, but Jesus knew their hearts. He looked at their hearts and he said, this is someone who liked the show I put on, but they're not actually willing to commit. And so many times in ministry, we, are just, we just want the light show and the smoke screens and the big band and the mountain camp experience. And we believe for a moment, but we're not ready to actually commit. And Jesus knows our hearts. I want to ask you guys, do you believe, you believe in Jesus, yes, but does Jesus believe in you? Does he look at your life and go, that is someone I can count on to follow me. That is someone I look at and I know 
that their heart is for me. Of course, of course God will always love you, but he won't always use us because he sees through our act. He sees through the phoniness. He sees through the attitude that doesn't care about him. And if you're living a life of compromise, you're missing out on all that God has for you. And so just as I finish this up, my question for you is are you willing to step into the consuming fire of who Jesus is? Are you willing to let him turn the tables in your life? Are you willing to have him transform you from the inside out? Lord, we love you. And we just ask God right now that your spirit would be here. Thank you, God, for speaking to us. Thank you, God, for your word. And thank you, God, just for the story of how you came into the temple. You turned over those tables, Lord, not because you were just angry or because you were looking to make a scene, but, God, you cared about how the temple was just being ruined. And, God, just like you looked in anger at that sin, you look at our lives, our, our hearts, the temple, the place where your glory is supposed to dwell. And God, you, you are angry at Satan for just the sin he's planted in our hearts, the seeds of sin he's planted. Help us, God, to let you in. We can't get rid of our sin on our own. We can't cleanse the temple on our own. No matter how hard we try, it won't work. But if we let you in, if we're brave enough to say, Jesus, I let you into my heart fully. I'm saved. I've given my life to you. But I let you in right now, and I want to just say, God, do whatever you want to do in my heart. God, that's what we need. That's what I need. And just with everyone's eyes closed, if anyone here feels that way, if anyone here feels like you right now, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, I need it, so I'm going to raise my hand. But if any of you guys feel like you need to open your heart today to whatever God has for you and say, God, cleanse my temple. I'm willing to let you come in and do whatever work you want to do. If anybody feels that way today, you can raise your hand and we'll pray together. But just, just, just show the Lord that that's how you feel today. Awesome, awesome, so good. You guys are rad. Love you guys. And put your hands down. If you feel that way, just pray these words with me. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you, God, for loving me. But God, I've let things into my heart, into my temple that have made it an impure place. There's sin, there's attitudes, there's corruption. And God, I need a fresh start. I need to be clean. Jesus, please, I'm opening the door of my heart to you. Come in and cleanse it. Make me clean today. Make me fresh. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and prepare me for what you have for me. Use me, Lord. Glorify your holy name through me. In Jesus' name, amen.